This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our One Mom versus the Machine series. And we previously brought you Kathy Hamilton's story of taking down the corrupt board and president of her local community college, and also Marva Collins' story of becoming disillusioned teaching in Chicago's public schools that were failing its students and deciding to take all of her life savings, $5,000, to start her very own school. And now today's feature, which comes to us from our field correspondent, Alex Cortez. This Ohio mom is a Spanish teacher at a public high school. Someone put a nail in my tire three times at school. Okay, now I wasn't where I could prove it. I didn't have film. But the first time a nail was in my tire at school, I didn't even think about it. The second time, within that same fall, it happened. I thought, okay, am I running over something? The third time it happened at school, I went out and my tire was flat. I thought, okay, what, what's going on here? Her name is Jade Hamilton, and she didn't always want to become a teacher. I was very fortunate, um, and it was by serendipity. I met a woman here at Marietta College. I had moved here from Washington, D.C. with my husband, and I just had a new baby. And I had previously worked on Capitol Hill and loved it. So I was moving from being a full-time professional to a full-time mom in a small um, town, and I was I didn't have very many friends, and I, I was struggling to find my identity. And when I met her, she was the new head of the Department of Modern Languages at Marietta College. So what she, after talking to me and finding out that I had traveled, studied abroad, and my dad was in the Foreign Service, and I'd lived in Chile and Argentina, and I'd lived in Brazil and Central America, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, and then in Africa and then in Spain. Okay, so she said, you, you, can you teach an adjunct class, which is on a per-class basis? I said to her, I, I'm, I didn't go to school to be a teacher. And she said, you know, many people who go to school to be a teacher are not good teachers. She said, you have all this life experience. Wouldn't you just try And try Jay did, teaching in college while she was getting her master's degree in teaching. And Jade has continued to bring all of her amazing experiences right into the classroom. Although it hasn't always exactly been what she was expecting. Many of her students just want to Google the answers. And they don't have a zeal for the actual mastery of the subject. But she tries to break through. I try to do what I call a song and dance. I see myself as a link in the chain. I'm the beginning teacher or the, you know, the secondary school teacher, and hopefully they will turn it, they will be turned on and take it in college. So I take my responsibility there. I try to be happy. I try to be in a good mood. I try to not, not entertain my kids because I can be hard on them, but I try to get them interested in, oh, wow, oh, I could do this, or, oh, Mrs. Thompson, and they'll come and say, did you see this soccer player, or did you see this music, this band that came out, and this song? Sadly, Jade would find out that not all of her colleagues had this same enthusiasm for her. 
after she asked what she thought was a very basic question about the union that they belonged to and that did the collective bargaining for their pay packages, which, by the way, she was fine with. I started to wonder, what is my $800, $900 a year going toward? Does it take that much money? Do the math and calculate that times all the people. We have, I think, three um, elementary schools, a middle school, and a high school. That's a lot of money to collective bargain. How, How hard is it? How long does that take? And you do it for about a year. You know, I started asking questions and wondering. And wonder she should. If you're a mom like Jade, trying to make ends meet for your family, you gotta look at every expense, especially one that's eight to nine hundred dollars a year. Jade's calculation is that it should cost about two hundred sixty dollars a year, both for the liability insurance that helps protect teachers in the event of a lawsuit against them, and for the collective bargaining. She knows that she can get private liability insurance for less than two hundred dollars a year. And the nature of collective bargaining is that it isn't an ongoing yearly cost. Usually they bargain your contract and it's good for five years or, you know, it's, it's not every single year they're bargaining. Jade isn't anti-union. In fact, she was a full dues-paying member of the union. But the mom and her kept coming across things. It really upset me when, at a certain point, a teacher showed me where the money goes on the national scale. You know, like, so 177 goes straight to the National Education Association. That's the national one. 177 of my dollars. The local union passes along this amount of Jade's dues to this national arm of the union. Well, okay, you're hearing about what kind of salaries they have. Almost 50 people making over $200,000. Then they may have a convention or an event in in Las Vegas, and they they stay in these hotels. I'm like, wait a minute, okay, where is this coming from? Well, you take Jade's $177 times 124,000 Ohio teachers making the same payment, and you get... $21,948,000 from Ohio to the National Union. And by the way, in case you forgot, Ohio's one of only 50 states. In Jade's statewide union, the Ohio Education Association, the OEA, is living quite differently, too. When you find out all the the list of salaries for the OEA, I I think there are two, two pages, full pages, of salary for the Ohio Education Association and probably the lowest paying person makes two or three times what I make as a teacher. So when I started to look at, okay, what's the OEA president make? Near $200,000. Well, in Ohio, a salary of $200,000 is luxury. I mean, you know, you're, you're a doctor, a lawyer, you maybe make that, but not normal people. And when we come back, this not normal mom starts to really dig in. This is Lee Habib, One Mom versus the Machine, Jade Thompson's story here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we return to our One Mom versus the Machine segment, Jade Thompson's story. And when we had left off, she had talked about how the salary she was seeing for the state union just weren't normal. Well, this not-so-normal mom, she was about to really dig in. Like all things in life, from business to government, normal people closer to home are more accountable. And because of this, they also perform better. Why can't it be a professional organization of people that knows our school that we employ somebody local? Why does it have to be national? And why does my money have to go to the national and then the OEA? The union would respond that state and national folks have unique expertise that not every local union could provide. They quite simply know better. And and it's an argument that has some merit. But sometimes they act like they know better, too. You start getting, during political cycles, magazines from the OEA. Okay, they have a monthly magazine that comes out. And it is, it's right, they, they just, sorry to say it this way, cram it right down your throat. They tell you who to vote for. Well, I take offense. Don't tell me who to vote for. Whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or a Green Party, none of us want to be told who to vote for, let alone through these means. Who's paying for this magazine? I am. I'm paying for the propaganda that comes my way, and it's a slick magazine. Okay, so I don't want to pay for that. I don't mind paying for collective bargaining. And then, one day, all these political activities became all too personal. I never really got involved, but I didn't make a stand or do anything, and I didn't like it at all. But then what happened was my husband was a city councilman. He decided to run for state representative. When he ran for state representative, um, what the union started doing was sending all these ads out against my husband that were very mocking and political in nature. And um, they were going to my mom's household. My mom was alive at the time. And, you know, in the return box paid for by the campaign for moderate majority, and then in parentheses, OEA, S-E-I-U. Like, okay, wait, the OEA in Columbus? The union that she was part of was taking her money and using it to oppose and mock her very own husband. And of course, without her permission to spend her hard-earned money this way. It was like an epiphany of, are you kidding me? This That's like a major slap in the face. Jade's husband was running as a Republican, but to her, that should have made no difference at all. Um, I wouldn't want a Democratic friend. I wouldn't want anyone to have to go through what I've had to go through, and um, it's just not right. It's not right for them to use your money, your forced dues, in that manner. If a union opposes a spouse of one of their Democratic members, 
They're risking doing so on behalf of a minority of their members. Republicans only make up about 25% of union membership. And if a union opposes a Republican member's spouse, they're also risking doing so on behalf of a minority. Less than 45% of union members identify as Democrats. The union is speaking for all in a way that they don't speak for all. Most membership organizations stick to the issues where the vast majority of their members agree for this reason. For the unions, their way of doing business could be untenable for them and exposes them to further diminishing. Their membership has already dropped in half from 20% of American workers to 10% in just over 30 years. And it doesn't help when you don't respond to your members. So I actually called the OEA president. Her name was Patricia Frost. At the time, she, of course, wouldn't take my call. And I tried to complain. I said, you know, really, this is... uh, this is ridiculous. I, I have to be in this union, and, you know, the OEA is doing something. I This is ridiculous. So um, it was a crucible moment for me, though, because before I kind of didn't have a voice. I didn't want to distinguish myself in any uh, pejorative way. So then I started getting, you know, angry. Uh, you won't take my call. I thought, okay, you, you that's fine. That's fine. I'm fighting back now. So... I I did feel alone for a a time, and I decided to write a couple letters to the editor, which got picked up by the Columbus Dispatch. Fairly nerve-wracking for me, but I thought to myself, if I'm quiet, all these people speak for me. And um, my husband is a really good man, and he does not deserve this, and this is wrong. I was so worried, oh, I'm going to have repercussions at school. But you know what I thought to myself? If you're my friend and, and you know who we are, then you'll support me. And because her union stopped supporting her, she decided to stop supporting it. I decided then to be a, a fee payer, and I changed my status. So I'm a non, I'm a, I have to pay still to be in the union to have my collective bargaining, but they give you a certain amount back. Ohio is not a right-to-work state. So if your workplace is unionized and you don't want to be a member of a union, you kind of sort of still have to be. As Jade mentioned, your only option is to become what's called a fee payer, where you have to pay the union for what they say are the cost to represent you in any potential legal matters and to negotiate your contract on your behalf, even if you don't want them to. But allegedly, you also no longer have to pay for all the other activities of a union, such as their political lobbying and election efforts, and this would be a good thing. But the reality is, well... If you just look at the OEA and NEA portions of a teacher's dues, a fee payer is forced to pay 97.9% of a regular union member's dues, a difference of only 2.1%. So 
So the Ohio Union, in effect, is saying that only 2.1% of their budget goes to non-representation activities. Hmm. Think that adds up? Whatever the reality is, this puny refund creates a strong disincentive for a teacher to leave a union. Especially when this can be the result. When you start to speak out about it or talk about it, other teachers try to intimidate you. They make you feel like, well, you can't go against the union. You've got to be in the union. Or if you're against the union, you're against public schools or you're against the teachers. Wait a minute. I'm not. I just, I don't want to be, don't you guys see all this stuff going on? Nobody, there are a lot of people who are like cows to the slaughter. They do not want to know. So that intimidation factor is people who are worried that they'll lose their job or they'll have to work with somebody who's very pro-union. And what I realized is if once you start talking about it, people start, they identify you and then they freeze you out. Like they will be walking down the hall in the school and they, you say hello to them as a polite, normal person with people skills and they act like they didn't hear you. I want to be working in a, in a school where I feel like I have colleagues that respect me and we can go to each other and help each other and, you know, cross-curriculum kinds of uh, lessons and those kinds of things. So uh, you don't, nobody wants to be in an organization where nobody will talk to you, right? Right. And what a mom this is. Again, don't get on the wrong side of a fighter. This is Our American Stories, Jade Thompson's story, and this takes courage, folks. I mean, this is the kind of courage that is hard to exhibit, particularly in small towns, and we broadcast from a small town here in Oxford, Mississippi. And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this story, Jade Thompson's story, more after these messages. is Our American Stories, and we return to the final portion of this incredible One Mom versus the Machine story, Jade Thompson's story. And when we left off, Jade was expressing the pain of her fellow teachers not talking to her in the hallways because she simply decided to leave the union. Despite this, Jade still chose to opt out of the union and talk to her fellow teachers but becoming a fee payer was easier said than done. When you opt out, you have a very small window every single year that you have to do. You're opting out. You get a packet in the mail from the OEA 
And um, of course, it comes at Christmas time when you are so busy. And what people, I didn't even look for that. I didn't even know what that package was. So it's this packet, and on the third or fourth page are the instructions for how to how to opt out and how to be a fee payer. You have to get it postmarked by January 15th, and so you know you're good to be a fee payer for one year. So you have a very short, small window. A lot of teachers don't even know about it, and they don't make it really easy to figure out how to do it. You have to look for it. So I think on this year. There were instructions on page three, and then there was another. You had to go into like page fifteen to. So, um, opting out is a chore. The union ought to ask you. It ought to be competitive. It ought to ask you. Do you want to be a member? And are we doing a good job? In fact, the state of Wisconsin in 2011 changed their structure so that individuals have the free choice of whether to opt into the union in the first place so that you don't have to opt out. And this really is how every other membership organization in America works. We decide whether to opt in to attend a certain church, the Lions Club, the Chamber of Commerce, or none of them at all. And when you decide not to become a member of these organizations, typically this doesn't happen. Someone put a nail in my tire three times at school. Tragically, the intimidation didn't stop at the grown-up level. My son's math teacher, she, in my son's math class, made a point. And my son was, you know, in high school, he didn't really want to be called out. He didn't want people to know his dad was the representative. And she made several references in class about my husband. Oh, and she said, you know, my son's name, and this is your dad, or whatever. Well, he was completely mortified. The health teacher did that, and so did the math teacher. And um, I had to go to our principal and have a meeting with them and say, you know, you can't do that. You, can't, you absolutely cannot call my husband's name in your class in your math class or your health class and um, embarrass my son because he he's not a political figure and he doesn't deserve that. That's crossing a line. If you're a teacher of English, a teacher of math, teacher of Spanish, stick on your subject. Teach your subject as best you can. You shouldn't be up there teaching your politics. So uh, I guess in English you could say, well, you know, you got to write a persuasion paper. But don't you feel intimidated if you know your teacher is supporting the Democrat and you want to support the Republican? Maybe your parents are Republican. And, you know, teachers this year even have gotten in trouble for uh, saying political things after the election. And um, <clears throat> they don't get fired, though. And they don't get, I, I just don't want my kids to be subject to that. I just want them to have um, anonymity and fairness. And so. That's been that's been a little bit touchy. I will be glad when my youngest graduates. So we'll see. And through all of this, Jade wasn't going to let the intimidation stop her. This mom sued them. About that time, I reached out to the National Right to Work Foundation. They they actually came to talk to me in person. 
and asked me if I wanted to be a part of a lawsuit. It was called Saxton versus the OEA, and I got to meet about 20 other teachers who were also a part of this lawsuit. Well, this is my first time to be with other people who I didn't feel so alone. They knew they knew that they were finding out the same kinds of things that I was finding out and sort of sticking their necks out. And that was empowering. Their lawsuit challenged the amount that the union was forcibly charging fee payers like them. These teachers believed that the refund amount off of the standard union dues should have been higher. That the union was unconstitutionally charging them for non-representation activities that they can't charge them for, such as public relations, union organizing, and lobbying. These seemingly lowly teachers who took on an all-powerful union in a three-year epic fight turned out to be right. And won. The Thaxton got, uh, I think, as a fee payer before, you got $105 back. Now you get 235 or around there. Um, so it doubled. That was the change that the union agreed to in a settlement. And the settlement talks were something else. It was, um, it was an education in itself watching the OEA lawyers argue. And they wanted us to, um, they actually approached, the OEA lawyers approached our, the any the National Right to Work lawyers and said, oh, just, just let's, let's bargain this deal for a couple of years and, and, you know, we'll see you back in court and you'll get paid again. And they were kind of trying to cut a deal under the, under the table, but none of those teachers were in it for money. They were all in it to have change. And so every single one of us said, we don't want it to just be effective for two years or four years. We want it to be, we're doing this for teachers that can't speak out or won't speak out, people going forward. And so um, we did get it that was 30 years effective. And it was for everyone who wants to be a fee payer, past, present, and future not just for the plaintiffs, as the unions will often try to limit it to. They weren't able to this time. And although Jade has achieved something significant, and more importantly can sleep easy at night knowing that she followed her conscience, this burden that's been thrust upon her has been a gigantic waste of her time and emotional energy at the end of the day, given her true mission in life. I want to teach. I don't want to get involved in this huge ordeal. I just want to teach. And I enjoy my job, and I'm very grateful for my job, and I don't want to make anybody mad. I want to be on a team. Is that too much to ask? Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And great job on that piece, Alex. I just want to teach. And Jade also said, opting out of the union is a chore. I mean, heck, 
We have to opt in to email, for goodness sake. And last but not least, the bullying point. We hear about it in schools all the time, working on bullying, anti-bullying this, anti-bullying that. But this one teacher went up against her union, and they just bullied her and bullied her nonstop. God bless Jade Thompson, one mom versus the machine. Don't get in the way of these moms, and don't bully them, because they're coming right back at you. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Jade Thompson's story. our American stories and we love telling stories about our men and women in uniform on this show and we don't wait for Memorial Day and Veterans Day to do it we do it all year round because the men deserve it and we talk about men present and men and women past who served some who've paid the ultimate price and for this one we turn to General John Kelly he spoke to a group of families who'd lost sons and daughters in service of our nation This was back in 2014. He was then a four-star general. He offered them a glimpse into the on-duty lives of their loved ones. He told the story of the last six seconds of two combat Marines killed in action under his command. Two men who are absolutely extraordinary and absolutely what the Marine Corps expects from each and every member. On the 22nd of April, 2008, two Marine battalions, the 1st Battalion, 9th Marines, the walking dead from Vietnam fame, and the 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, were switching out in a place called Ramadi, Iraq. One battalion was going home in a few days, and the other just starting its seven-month tour. Two Marines, Corporal Jonathan Yale and Lance Corporal Jordan Herter, 22 and 20 years old, respectively, one from each battalion. They were assuming the watch together at the entrance gate to an outpost that contained a makeshift barracks housing 50 Marines. The same broken down ramshackle building was also home to 100 Iraqi police who were our allies. They were my men in this fight against the terrorists in Ramadi. Yale was a dirt poor mixed race kid from Virginia with a wife and a daughter and a mother and a sister who lived with him, and he supported them as well, on $13,000 a year. Herder was a middle-class white kid from Long Island. The two of them were from two completely different worlds in our country. Not good, not bad, just different. Had they not joined the Marine Corps, they would never have known each other. They would never have even understood that multiple Americas exist 
simultaneously, depending on your education level, your family's income status maybe. But they were Marines, they were combat Marines, and because of this bond, they were brothers as close as if they were born to the same woman. The mission orders they received from the sergeant, their squad leader, I'm sure, went something like this. Okay, you two clowns, stand this post and let no unauthorized personnel or vehicles pass. You clear on that? And I'm sure Yale and Herder then rolled their eyes and said in unison something like, yes, sergeant, we got it. We know what we're doing. Screw you. <laughs> Again, I'm prior enlisted. I know how they think. <laughs> they then relieved two other Marines on watch, who, as it turned out, were probably the two luckiest Marines on the earth that day. And they assumed those posts, Yale and Herder. A few minutes later, a very large blue truck turned down the alleyway that was no more than 100 yards in length. It sped its way through the serpentine concrete walls, Jersey walls. The truck then stopped just short of where these two were posted. It detonated. It killed both of them catastrophically. And if you know what combat's like, you know what I'm talking about when I say catastrophically. 24 brick masonry houses were damaged or destroyed by the blast. A mosque 100 meters away collapsed. The truck's engine came to rest 200 meters away, and it knocked down a building before it came to rest. Their explosive guys reckoned that the blast was made by a bomb of at least 2,000 pounds of explosive. Two died, and because these two young infantrymen died, they didn't know how to run from danger. 150 men, 50 U.S. Marines and 100 Iraqis were saved. When I read the situation report, a few hours after it happened, I called the regimental commander, Luke Craparata, and I asked him for details about what happened. It seemed different to me. Unfortunately, Marines dying or being seriously wounded is common in combat. We expect Marines, and for that matter, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and coast guardsmen, regardless of rank, to do their duty, to stand their ground, and to die, if that's what the mission requires. The regimental commander had just returned from the site. He agreed with me, for it reported to me that there were no American witnesses, just Iraqi police. I figured if there was any chance of finding out what actually happened, and to recognize these young men for what they'd done, I'd have to go down there myself, because I understood, unfortunately, that the bureaucrats in Washington would never accept Iraqi statements for what had taken place. If there was any chance at all, it had to come under my signature. So I traveled to Ramadi the next day and spoke to half a dozen Iraqi police, all of whom told me the same story. They said the truck turned down into the alley and sped up as it made its way through the serpentine Jersey walls. They all said they knew immediately what was going on, particularly when the Marines began to fire. The Iraqis all began firing as well, then to a man ran for safety just prior to the explosion. They all survived. Many were injured, some seriously injured. But as one of the Iraqis said to me, sir, they'd run from the danger like any normal man would to save his life. What he didn't know until then, he said, and what he learned at that instant, was that Americans are not normal. <laughs> With tears welling up, he said to me, Sir, in the name of Allah, 
No sane man would have stood there and done what they did. No sane man. They saved all of us. What we didn't know at the time, what I didn't know at the time, and only learned a couple of days later, after I wrote a summary of statement of, these, of this bravery and submitted both Yale and Herder for Navy Crosses, which is the number two award for Marines and sailors in combat. What I didn't know was that one of the security cameras we had at the location that was damaged initially in the blast had caught everything. It happened exactly as these Iraqis described it to me. It took exactly six seconds by that recording from when the truck entered the valley until it exploded. Six seconds. And you can watch, and I did watch many, many times on this recording, the last six seconds of their lives. When it first started, I suppose it took about a second or so for the Marines to separately come to the conclusion about what was going on. They had no time to talk it over, only enough time to take half an instant and think about what the sergeant maybe had told them a few minutes before, let no unauthorized persons or vehicles to pass. At that point, I think, according to the recording, this Marine said, about five seconds to live. Think of it, five seconds to live. I don't think they knew it. They didn't have time. It took about another two seconds for the two jarheads to raise their weapons, to take aim, and to open up at that truck. By this time, the truck was halfway through the barriers and gaining speed the whole time. Here, the recording shows a number of Iraqi policemen, some of whom had fired their AK-47s, were now scattering like the normal and rational men they were, some running right past the Marines. The two Marines had about three seconds to live. For about two seconds more, the recording shows the Marines firing their weapons nonstop. The truck's windshield exploded into shards of glass as their rounds took it apart and undoubtedly tore into the body of the terrorist that was trying to kill their brothers. Unaware of the danger at the time, the Marines and Iraqi soldiers could take comfort in the fact if they'd have known that two Marines were on watch and would die before they ran. The truck careens to a stop immediately in front of the two Marines. In all of this instantaneous violence, Yale and Herder never hesitated. They never stepped back. They never even started to step back. They never shifted their weight. With their feet spread shoulder-width apart, they leaned into the fire and fired as fast as they could. They had only, at this point, one second to live. And then the truck explodes, the camera goes blank, and the two young men go to their God. Six seconds. Not enough time to think about their country or their flag or about their lives or their deaths but more than enough time for two very brave young men, like your sons and daughters, like your brothers and sisters, like your spouses, two very brave young men to do their duty for eternity. That is the kind of people 
who are on watch for us all over the world tonight. That is the kind of young men and women that came from your families. And for those of you tonight and all of the families who have lost the light of their lives, they can say to every American that it was my boy or it was my girl who stood their post and did their duty <clears throat> into eternity. Corporal Jonathan Yale's story, Lance Corporal Jordan Herter's, and that's General John Kelly. Their last six seconds revealed everything about their character and the Marine Corps.